Welcome to the Redemptification Podcast, where we focus on inspiring people and communities and starting conversations around the topic of redemptification. Redemptification we define as the creative work of redeeming a person or place to its intended beauty and glory. I'm your host, John Marsh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ty Maloney. Well, welcome to the Redemptification Podcast. It's going to be a great one today. We have our friend, kind of mentor, a international speaker, author, and consultant of top-level executive leaders around the world, co-founder of Giant Worldwide, and an all-around awesome guy, Steve Cockrum, with us today. It's going to be amazing, and we've got Ash here as well. For adult supervision. It's going to be fun. We'll talk about all the things that Steve has been working on and, and some of the great things he's done to add value to us. Welcome today, Steve. John, thank you. Thanks, Ash. Uh, I, as a Brit, I always, I always love my American introductions because they're, they're so un-British in the sense of you go through this roll call. I always think, this is going to be awesome. Who's about to come on here? And then I realize it's me you're talking about. So uh, great. Thanks so much. And, I'm not and like any... At the end, I needed to go, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah, well, then you'd have to say how many pounds I was, and that wouldn't be any good. So, <laughs> Well, it's so great to have you. You, you know, your leadership tool's been used in the, by the Air Force, huge companies. I mean, the five voices is, a, is just a tremendous tool. But today, we're kind of kind of back up and, and, and given an experience that you did with Ash and I in London a, a number of years back and how it transformed our lives and really talk about what's behind this great tool, the five voices, the source code and your journey to get there. So in our experience, we had met you through through Facebook, I guess I did. And um, it was Alison Trowbridge introduced us, which I got to thank her for that. That got, added value to her tremendously that she introduced me to you. And we became friends. I told Ash we were going, we were in Italy. I said, can we stop back by London? She said, honey, that's not like a stop by. That's like a go there. But we did go there. And she, we got there. She said, we we're meeting you at the train station. And she was like uh, at Gerard's Cross. And she's like, what does he look like? Well, I can't really remember. I said, I'm sure he'll know what we look like. And so we meet you and go to your house. And that's where it starts. <laughs> Ash, if it was bad for you, just imagine what it was like for Helen as well, my little nurturing guardian. He goes, What we've who's coming? I said, I haven't met them before, but I had an hour's conversation with John on the phone and they're coming. And then also, didn't you bring Josh as well? Yeah, so it was like, yeah. you know, it was just it was just priceless. But Helen, I think, has over the years given me grace that I don't do it that often. She I mean, didn't even respond surprised. She was amazing. <laughs> So what we do, Josh starts saying he's talking and uh, Ash, I'll let you kind of share this. How, how did that interaction come about where we wanted to spend some time with Steve and I thought it was going to be me and him talking business, talking cool stuff, you sitting on the side kind of watching and, and this huge curveball. Yeah. So we were all sitting in their living room and um, Joshua was talking to their middle daughter, Meg, and she was asked, I think they just got on the conversation about some of the five voices things. And then they got on the conversation about uh, Myers-Briggs, you know, and so we have John um, is what we call the personality Taliban over in our um, neck of the woods. And every test that could be taken has been taken. And 
reedified. Um, even though we didn't have the knowledge of understanding how to incorporate that, we were definitely trying to. And he threw out that he was um, an oddball in the family, that he was the only introvert and the only one like him. The rest of us were extroverts. And um, he asked me what I was. And at the time, I had tested a couple of times as an ENTJ. And um, I believe when I said that, that it kind of sparked a little interest in Steve's um, massive amount of uh, knowledge in his noggin. And he, he kind of put that back and knew that he wanted to spend some time with me um, the next morning. Unknown to me and unknown to John. John, like he said, was looking forward to getting up and being the center of attention as he usually is. Um, and I was not looking forward to being the center of attention, which I do not like being. Um, and yeah, he, he, he lovingly unpacked me, which is, um, is a, it's a, a tender and an intimate and hard thing to do, but it's so rewarding. Um, and yeah, so that's what happened. I, I went to bed thinking I was an ENTJ and I woke up and found out that I'm an ISTJ and there you go. World changed. <laughs> it only seems like two letters, Steve, but what does that mean? How does the the way that you spent that time with Ash and, and which has now become an incredible way for you to multiply um, your gifts and increase influence in these influential leaders. How does that work and what does it mean? I think, I mean, I think that when, um, when people take tests, the test doesn't tell you automatically who you are by nature. I think that's the most important thing for people to grasp is um, every assessment in the world is more limited than the person who wrote it would like you to believe. Because in effect, what it's giving you is an indication of what you think you ought and should be. So I would say it's, it's kind of like your test tells you how you're showing up on television. In the, in the world of Zoom and COVID, we're even more on television now than we used to be. So Ash is presenting to me externally a particular way of being which didn't necessarily resonate with what I know about an ENTJ. So I always say to people is to go, the most important thing is to go, do you really know who you were made to be at your absolute best? So your nature is different from your nurture, is different from choice, and all three make a huge impact in why you choose to behave the way you do. Now, the issue with Ash, of course, is in early life, nurture overrides nature in the way we choose to behave because we all desire the affirmation of authority figures in our lives we as children usually want to please the people and we will usually conform to whatever patterns of behavior are deemed necessary or are in many ways valued or celebrated so in ash's case ash had been a parent pretty much since she'd been five years old and so therefore, in some ways, had almost always been responsible for everyone else and had always played the role of whatever the person, whether parents or you, she'd always played the role that you needed to complement what other people were doing. So the big thing for Ash was to suddenly realize the way that she'd been playing on TV almost all her life was not the same as her nature. It, it, she was in many ways always picking up the pieces or in your case, making you look good because you would be this incredible entrepreneur who came up with myriads of ideas and possibilities 
And Ash would do what she'd always done, which is to come around behind and go, okay, in order for this not to be a complete disaster, I'm going to have to do this, 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 this. So Ash really had spent a lifetime learning how to play a role that others needed her to play. That's nurture and choice. What happened that morning, I believe, was I actually showed her a little bit about going, that may be how you're choosing to behave and choosing to function, but you know, you'll find it exhausting and you'll find it very tiring and ultimately not as rewarding because you've never had a chance to be the way you were made at your best to be. So an ISTJ is very, very different from an ENTJ in the way that they engage with the world. There are similarities, but fundamentally what was really happening, and this is what happens with a lot of people, the moment they realize that's why I'm so exhausted or that's why this doesn't fit or that's why I've struggled for so long and you've given vocabulary and language in hopefully a loving, kind way to go, no wonder I found it difficult. So I think that was, you know, I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, Ash, so forgive me, but I think that in some ways it was it was the realisation for the two of you at a key moment of your life. John, it was a transition moment for you, but in some ways, if you'd gone on to the new thing without Ash having her, in many ways, life change, she would have ended up being the servant who ran along behind you and fixed things into the next season of life and ministry together. Whereas actually by doing what we did and honoring you, you know, you almost waiting two years that you allowed Ash to really be liberated, to be the amazing woman that she's been made to be, where the complementary superpowers of you two is now actually embedded in what you do. So I think, Ash, I sent you off to my uh, Southern specialist, didn't I, Miss Amy Norton, who, to understand the, pr the pressures of a Southern woman, it was almost like it was one thing, a, a slightly strange charismatic Brit telling you you were different, but I knew you needed someone who'd walk with you because it's not easy living into an identity that you've never given yourself permission almost, or have never had the permission to truly be the guardian nurturer ISTJ that you are. Ash, do you want to comment on that? That's exactly true. Um, Amy was incredible. She had a lot of empathy being um, a Southern woman and also just having, just being a woman um, is a huge um, helper in that. Um, also, it, it gave me the ability to be more careful with my approach of learning, um, not, not necessarily holding back, but making sure that I was aware of how that was impacting John. And she helped me walk through those steps because it was like, you know, I think I said at one of the conferences was that I, I shook a snow, snow globe. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, we had developed a life and um, patterns that worked for us. And to take that and just absolutely jolt it out of that position um, into something else that needed to happen he celebrated that and supported that, but it was a learning curve for both of us. And I believe you walking with him through that and teaching him on how to approach me and then Amy um, helping me on my side with approaching him and how do we take these newfound truths about ourselves and, um, and apply them to actually be victorious with it. That's what happened. So Steve, but you can be a leader that has been really incredibly successful and use your gifts in all these different ways. And, and never really, and have been exhausted doing it, never know who you really are. I mean, you must have stories of people who have been going their whole life wondering, why does it feel like I'm, 
And I love your analogy. You, you use the right hand and the left hand, if you're right hand dominant, that we all have both tendencies, but that a lot of times people have spent their whole life learning to write with their non-dominant hand and they're better at it, but it's still a real struggle. Yeah, no, I mean, it usually leads to tears. And the longer, the longer in life that someone waits before they find it, the more painful it is, I would say. Because in some senses, you can, um, you suddenly realize I've spent 61 years living a different way. And it turns out I was doing it for the affirmation of my father who died 25 years ago. So in a sense, it, it's always liberation is, is both a joy and also a challenge. So in a sense, um, people often have to mourn for the years when they've almost not lived the way, not led the way that they were wired most for because they were doing it because somebody else had told them that's what they ought and should be. That's not everybody, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot of people who just simply knowing this is how I lead at my best. Because there's a lot of ought and should. So, you know, a lot of people in corporate lives are told, you know, you need to be an INTJ, cold, hard, ruthless, disciplined, you know, say nothing. And it's like, it's fine. I know why they say that. There are tendencies there which are really great. But you'll never be a better leader than leading the way you were made to be at your best. And that's the that's the bit. And then, of course, actually, when you have two people who are very different, so you and Ash are complete opposites in the same way that Helen and I are, the real skill is how do you create an environment in your home where actually both of the superpowers can come together to create synergy? And all I say to Lisa, if you can do it in your home with your marriage, then team is easy because as the leader, you usually have positional authority at work. At home, you don't. Now, you may have behaved like you did, but fundamentally... <laughs> In the end, I will always know. People say to me, Steve, you know, how do you work people out? I don't really know. But if, for an interview, I always say, I take somebody for a round of golf and then I go and have dinner with them and their family. You can ask any of the other questions that interviewers love to ask. But I will tell you is, if I watch somebody's character on a golf course, nobody plays perfect golf for four hours. Are they good company when it's not going well? Do they cheat? Can they count? You know, have they got a temper? And then if I watch you, with your family at home having dinner. You can't, for a male leader, if you have a liberated wife, I'll promise you that tells me more about that individual than just about anything of what they have on their resume or what they've achieved. Because if you can do that for the person who usually is given the most sacrificially to raise your family and to make you look good, then basically that's the point where I think I go, okay, here's somebody who I can trust. And the responsiveness, and this is, you know, kudos to you. It's really hard for an ENFP entrepreneur who has done the things that you've done and almost without realizing it, Ash has ended up having to do a huge amount of firefighting behind the scenes. You embraced the pain of that process and chose to be a liberator for Ash. And that's the thing which for me, you know, I might give you a hard time, but that's the thing I admire most about you. There are very few ENFPs entrepreneurs who will slow their life down, go through their own almost dying in a process of not being able to move at 300 miles an hour in order that you can finish a season so that you two can begin a new one. And, you know, that's the thing I love about you, that you've been really prepared to do that. And you've seen your wife change. You, you've seen a liberation in her and a superpower that she's always had 
latent in her, but actually she's using those now. And of course, she's a much better organizational leader than you and I will ever be because she by nature brings order, system, discipline, structure, and everyone feels safer around Ash as the leader than they do around you and me. Now, it's not as exotic and it's not as exciting at times, but it's the combination of those two things, which, which I think is the most, you know, that's the biggest compliment that I can pay to you guys. Well, pausing was so difficult. And I remember what you showed me. You like drew two squares and the new thing you want to do. <laughs> and then what we have to do before we can go to the new thing. And I really, you said it's going to be difficult. You said it was going to hurt. It was a pruning and you kind of used the pruning example. And, and boy, it was so difficult um, just because I had, I didn't know how addicted I was to the, to the speed and velocity of decision-making and excitement. And I was living off of core drugs in my heart from going fast and being admired. And I had to stop. And what we just decided is we were not going to do anything if we weren't on the same page and we were going to build a new, and you gave us the terminology preferred vision or preferred future together mm -hmm. and then enter that. And I realized we had been operating in levels of division, our whole marriage, two visions. Yeah. I mean, and most people do that their whole lives, John. I would say that where you are very different in personality to your spouse, what tends to happen is we live at best parallel lives. Children give, in many ways, the perfect excuse to almost live parallel lives that intersect occasionally around a family vacation or an event. But ultimately, we often tend to live very siloed responsibilities and parallel lives and i always say to people when when you get the chance you know when the when the kids are a little bit older the question you have to ask is to go um i don't want to be doing anything in the next season of life that sees us doing anything other than convergent lines so that we are doing more things together and i think that's the bit where you know i mean you're a lot younger than we are obviously but kind of around about that 50 phase it's usually the time when you watch either people, the kids have grown up and they either diverge and they sadly break, you know, the marriage breaks, or they recommit and double down, as it were, to go, we're going to do something together or I'm going to make sure there is a lot more intersection of the way that we live and do life and ministry in the next season of our marriages. So, you know, I don't think that's a, a general, I think it's a principle rather than a law but the more different you are by personality, the harder you have to work at creating convergence rather than divergence or even parallel living. Because parallel living doesn't work when the kids are gone. No. Because there was and no Ash, reason why you were together. And Ash just put up with things I didn't know. She gave me a great example. One time we're standing at the dryer and she handed me a box and then she handed me another box. And I'm just talking, baby, you know what I want to do? I'm swinging my hands and doing stuff. Hold mm -hmm. this. Please hold this. And pretty soon my <laughs> arms were so loaded I was like, oh, my gosh, what do you want me to do with all this? She said, that's what you do to me. Yeah, boom. And gave me the lesson that all I was doing was handing off things to her, getting stuff started and handing it off. And I wasn't connected to her. So, Ash, how was this process? I know I was feeling like I was dying in some ways. You were coming out of all these things that were put on you as a girl to be a southern woman and you're supposed to be serving and you're supposed to be helping and not that you're not those things but but what does the liberation feel like on your side well um honestly it was a little bit intimidating um 
I, I don't want to say frightening. I don't know if it was frightening, but it was definitely unknown. And um, to trust, the trust factor was huge of whether or not I could really be that individual that I am by nature, um, not just with the room or the environment I was in, but um, in myself, to trust myself that it's okay for me to really say how I feel, what I think, what I need. Um, and I think actually being who I am by nature and ISTJ or by the vo voices being a guardian nurturer, that's one of my harder things to say is what I need a lot of times because I'm very uh, capable of doing a lot of things on my own and I don't want to do things I seem incompetent at doing. And then I don't want to ask others that I don't know if they're competent of doing. And so then I'm just like, oh, I forget it. I'll just do it myself. And I get myself stuck in the loop sometimes. But, um, but yeah, the process now, it, it, it's like I've gone to the gym and at first I could only do one push-up, and now I can go to the gym and I can do whatever, 50 push-ups without taking a break. And it's going through the work and being in an environment that supports that um, and actually being encouraged along the way that I can do more, I can be more of who I am and I can apply it to be a service to myself and to others. Um, because ultimately that's what I want to do is I want to love myself so that I can love others. Um, but that's been my journey is it was hard at first and it's um, definitely easier now. And I look forward to the challenge of it being a little bit harder as I continue to learn. So Steve, tell us a minute about what is an ENFP and an ISTJ for those that don't know. And then how does that connect to the creation that you spent most of your life, I think, working to be able to do, which is create a way to interpret that, the five voices that's easy for teams and people to communicate. Yeah, so I mean, so basically, um, Myers-Briggs came from a guy called Carl Jung, who was really, I guess, the father of psychology. And really, he, he did work on, you know, the predictability of human uh, behavior and different dichotomies. I mean, he, nobody was really sure whether it was right or not at the time. It was, you know, we're only really at the beginning, I think, of understanding why people behave the way they do in terms of neurological pathways. But basically, he's saying that, you know, there are certain dimensions of your personality and there are two basic types. So, you know, you've already alluded to when it comes to how we recharge, where we get our energy from, you have a choice between the extrovert function and the introvert function. So extroverts recharge in the external world, people, activity, doing things, they think out loud, they do as much as they can in the world, they find energizing. Introverts recharge internally, often away from people, away from the noise. They need usually space and a chance to go in here and reflect and think, and they're often more thoughtful. You don't necessarily hear a running commentary on their lives. Well, the, the advantage of what Jung was teaching and Myers-Briggs took on was to say that we are a type. It, it's the certain things called what we call a trait instrument, which is how much of something are you? So you can go, well, I'm at 85% of this and 15% of that. Whereas with, with Jungian type, it's saying you're either uh, an E or an I. It's not how much are you. When you hear somebody say, I'm an extreme extrovert, that isn't something which Jung would have been pleased with. He just simply said, you have a clear preference for an extrovert way of recharge. So there were three dimensions that Jung came up with. So how you recharge. The second was how you prefer to process and receive information. So sensing and intuition. And then how you make decisions based on that information. So thinking and feeling. And then 
Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs that were, you know, a mother-daughter combination coming out the back of the Second World War, which is amazing when you think about it, basically said, wouldn't it be great if we could celebrate diversity and difference rather than try and kill it? And they added what they called the J and the P dimension and really unlocked almost like a Aladdin's cave for things which you would now know as type dynamics and things that go with it. But what you have is basically a way of putting 16 different personalities. And what I always say to people is people's biggest fear is you're going to put me in a box. And so many people put people in a box and go, that's you, therefore that's who you are. And I say, no, if you think about it, what people experience in the real world on the other side of you, me and Ash is a mix of our nature, our nurture and our choice. So actually, you know, I have a daughter who's an ENFP like you, John, but you both show up very differently in the world because you may share the same nature, but you've had very different nurture, upbringings, cultures, gender, ethnicity, successes, failures, and you've made different choices. Some of them good, some of them not so good. So each individual is truly unique, even if we share a similar nature. And I think that's the bit where, for me, it's trying to create liberation for people, where I'm saying this is this is a coat to try on, not a box to live in. And what you often find is people who are not as skilled as they ought to be with an instrument say, okay, Ash, you are an ENTJ because that's what you tested. And when it's a strong authority figure says that, Ash goes, yes, I probably am because I've never known any different. And instead of a box to live in, it's a coffin to die in. And, and effectively then, the moment I've cemented, Ash, that's who you are, Ash will recognize the behaviors. I effectively have done something more harmful than pretty much anything else. I probably denied Ash ever the opportunity to live into the person that she was made to be her absolute best. And that's why it feels for people often very, very liberating because we all have oughts and shoulds in our upbringing. We have oughts and shoulds in our culture and some of which we just don't know. And I think one of the things I love doing most with people is storytelling because the nurture story is often one of the most profound ways of helping people understand the journey they've come from. And I do it um, usually in London when people come visit me. We go to my favourite restaurant in London, which I think you bought, you guys came to, didn't you? The Pollen Street uh, Social, which awesome. to an American, I go, we're going to have a four and a half hour lunch. And every American looks at you and you're like, what? Four and a half hours, lunch is 25 minutes on the go because we've got things to do. I said, no, trust me, you are going to love this. And by the end of it, you know, people go, all right, Steve, you were right. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's an experience, but telling the story, listening to people tell their story and understanding how nurture has shaped the way they behave, I think is one of the most, it's one of the reasons why people feel listened to you know, very few people ever take the time to listen to anybody for that long, let alone let them be the centre of, of the story. I will say that um, even a moment ago when I said that you actually lovingly unpacked me, what you did, when I, what I mean by that, I'm going to clarify that, Guardian's great clarifiers. Um, mm. <clears throat> what I mean by that is that you took, you, you let me bring my suitcase of all the things that I had just throughout my life compiled together. You opened that up and gave me great compelling questions to then make my preference. And mm. then it, it was according to life instances and then circumstances that I lived through and happened to me 
and then what I chose out of that and how I was applying that. And I could see it all. It's just, I think that a lot of times we don't have the space or the, what we think permission maybe to, to look at everything at once and go, wait a minute, you're right. That was how I was raised. That is really how I believe. And that's what I chose out of that. We don't ever really have the opportunity most of our lives to even have that presented to us that way. And so, so if you meet me, most people probably would never believe I'm an introvert because I'm very outgoing. I'm very accommodating. Yeah. Um, I definitely love taking care of people, but it's a role that I'm choosing to participate in now, knowing mm-hmm. what I know about myself, that as long as I have the ability to refuel and go back to what I need for me, I can give those things to others. So. So I am going to answer your question, John, by the way, about where voices came from as well. But Ash, I love those things. So I love listening even to your reflection on what happened, because at the time you don't realise. But when you get a chance to reflect on it, you go, oh, it makes sense. And of course, for a guardian, being able to see the sequential process and it makes logical sense actually brings huge peace in that process. So um, 20, gosh, when would it have been? 2003, 18 years ago, John. Um, I came out the back of um, a failed business project, which cost an awful lot of money and a lot of time. And the church that I was part of at the time, 125 families invested over one and a half million dollars in the project and it failed. This was a Baptist church, by the way, most of whom were teetotal. So it tells you we were pretty persuasive at the time, even though we didn't really know how. And at the end of this process, somebody said, Steve, we're going to pay for you to go and study two things. Myers-Briggs and Fire OB and I'm like you're gonna pay for it they said it's our gift to Helen your wife I'm like well if you're gonna pay for it I've got nothing else on at the moment I'll go and I never worked hard at anything in my life I was 33 years old I'd laughed at all the people like Helen who studied diligently I thought it was awesome to be able to get by on the minimum amount of work maximum amount of talent And I remember being deeply convicted about this. And I vowed, I said, Lord, whatever you give me next, I will try and study with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind and with all my strength. I don't mind what it is, but I actually feel embarrassed that I've never really disciplined the talent that you gave me. So, of course, when Myers-Briggs came around, I went, well, what do I do? Well, I went to Helen and sort of said, well, you know, how do you study? So she said, well, you get books and you read them. And you. so I actually read, I ordered the textbooks. I read them all before I went on the course. I'd ne- you know, And it was like, it made sense of my life and my experience in a way that was like, oh my goodness. So I went on the course. I'm there with all these HR professionals. And I'm like, this, you know, what do you do? I've just failed running a nightclub and I'm a pastor. And they're like, what? But I actually knew more about the subject than everybody, even at times the people presenting, because I'd spent months learning this stuff. And it had been like a mirror had been, you know, looking in the mirror and going, that's me. Now I know why I behave that way or that's with stress. So I only got 99% in the test, which for me was the highest I've ever got, but it was the most disappointing. And I will still argue about the question that they think I got wrong was ambiguous. But it was Uh almost like... What happened, of course, is my character, if I'm passionate about something, everyone ends up receiving it, whether they like it or not. You know, hopefully I'm a little more um, sensitive than I was in the past, but I'm not going, this is incredible. So I ended up teaching it everywhere. Now, most people think that's me just being selfless and going, Steve, you're just so kind, giving yourself away to people. No, the way ENTPs learn is they teach 
and they use it to master. And when the moment they feel they've mastered the skill set, they move on and find another one. But this was one where, you know, 20 years of learning and I, I became Yoda, you know, personality Yoda, because in some senses I spent, it's really hard to replicate 20 years of discipline, hard work on something. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. When we started Giant, we built all of these tools, visual tools for the new world. And the criteria was an educated 13-year-old had to be to understand them, use them and teach them to their friends. Otherwise, our experience was it didn't matter how good the tool or the insight was. Leaders were so busy in a world that no longer stopped. If they couldn't use it immediately and apply it and teach it, it just disappeared. And Izzy, my you know educated now 21-year-old, who was 13 at the time, said to me, Daddy, um, I love the fact I'm an ENFP. And I love the fact I can understand it. I can use it every day. And I love the fact you almost disciple me using this knowledge and help me grow. But she said, Daddy, it's too complicated for me to teach uh, my friends. Doesn't that violate the principles that you and Mr. Jeremy have set as giants reason to be? (laughs) And I went like, uh, you know, in true pioneer style, well, darling, let let me go away and think about that one because I don't have an immediate answer. And and the more I reflected on it, the more I went, oh, this is true because in the end it's one of those instruments where when the expert is in the room it feels like this is the easiest thing in the world to use ever the moment the expert leaves the room no one can remember what that letter is no one knows what it means and you have one keeny who usually has really learned it and now starts telling everyone else what they are and it it always goes wrong so I, i went okay and i said jeremy i said we're gonna have to come up with something else aren't we and I'm a pressure of the deadline person. You might know that by now, those who know me. So we were doing, you know, when Giant started, Jeremy's like, he always loved my Jedi skills. He had others. And we, he put 24 leaders in a room in America at Atlanta, all of him. He sold every single seat. I sold none. Because I'm like going, Jeremy, I don't think we've really mastered what we're doing. He said, don't you worry. It's going to be awesome. They'll love it. So... <laughs> So without a connector, we never got started. So these are amazing people. Jeremy's friends, he's like, he literally is selling me like soap at this point. You know? <laughs> um, and the second, the second gathering, of course, we did all my Jedi mind tricks. Then, of course, next one round, he's like, what are we going to do this time? And I go, Jez, I'm working on something that I think Izzy's challenged me. We've got to find a way to simplify, simplify it without losing its power. And I'm working on something called Five Voices. And this is when we were living together, you know, two families in this big house and I was trying it out on people. And of course, I'm I'm literally he's already over in America and he's going, you better have something great because we've got all these people turning up and they're really excited. And he said, I've been telling them all about this five voices thing that's going to change their lives. And I'm going, like, oh, great. So in, it wasn't that I hadn't been working on it. It was more that it hadn't yet coalesced into a finished product so i had 10 hours between heathrow airport lounge and landing in atlanta to effectively finish five voices <laughs> and justin who many of you you know justin westwood who worked with us was like still with us now justin always knew in those days when jeremy or i landed he would have less than 24 hours to turn it into a presentation others could 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 read so we did voices live the day after I landed in Atlanta, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as if awesome. it was 
And of course, being a British voice, everyone thinks it must be incredibly well thought through. And, you know, it sounds very coherent. And when I got stuck, I just went back to the Myers-Briggs stuff. So in the end, voices is written in the source code of Jungian type and Myers-Briggs. So when I know your voice order, I know what your best fit will be. So, you know, we're using them interchangeably now because you guys have learned how to use the dark magic as well. So, you know, when Ash tests ISTJ, I know that's a guardian, nurturer, you know, pioneer. When with you, with an ENFP, I know that's a connector, creative pioneer, nurturer, guardian. So in a sense, I can reverse engineer both ways, but here was the genius, and forgive me for saying this, voices was so sticky. Every team or individual in the world could hear voices being taught. They could apply it immediately to their lives and they could use it in the team without an expert being present. So it's superpower is it didn't lose any of the power and the depth of what we used to do with Myers-Briggs and various things, but it suddenly became a vocabulary language that educated 13 year olds could understand, use and teach to their friends. So it's, you know, I always say, if you're going to use the therapy is only as good as a therapist. There's some brilliant psychometric assessments out there, John, I'm sure you've done all of them. But the key is find someone who's an expert in what you do. But if you're going to use it inside an organization, particularly if you're going to try and create a common vocabulary and language, you know, we work now with companies of tens of thousands of employees. Voices is just one of those things which allows everyone to play. And more importantly, from a you know slight purist point of view, it's really hard to get it wrong. <laughs> because in the end, you only really need to know what's the first voice. What do I need to know about a connector? What do I need to know about a guardian? If I'm, and if I'm starting the process of leading somebody, rather than just assume I'll do for you what I'd want done for me, and then find it goes horribly wrong, you at least now have some insights and tools and lenses that allow you to begin thinking about how do I create an environment where those around me get to be their best? So, you know, I hope that's a, not a too long-winded way of saying voices then got refined and honed like it does. You know, we, we just kept using and playing and refining. And then, of course, we had to record 16 videos with 16 coaching series. And at that point, because I had to nail my colours to the mast after four years and go, OK, here's my beautiful mind. This is how it ought to be. But the reality is for a couple of them, the voice order was slightly different. So we changed them and they're now... That's what they are. And to be quite honest, um, people, people around the world now write every single day saying this has changed my marriage. It's changed my kids. You know, and uh, I, I always if a nurturer ever writes to me, I had one yesterday who was the uh, I think she was the connections pastor at Life Church in, in Oklahoma. And she said that she said your championing of nurturers. She's an ESFP, so a nurturer connector creative. And she wrote just to say, it's been so liberating. So I always write to them, go, if you'd love to jump on a Zoom with me, I'd love to hear more about that and help you in any way I can. And it's amazing when nurturers go, you really believe in us, don't you? So for me, the 43%, so it, I love it when I can almost leverage my not quite celebrity status because, you know, I hide away too much for that. But I realise that for a lot of people, they've listened to me talk so much. I'm always... I've got the perfect face for radio, apparently, but actually just simply spending a little bit of time and just listening and encouraging and speaking in. I, I, I love doing that. It's kind of it's 
I hopefully leverage the influence that I have to be an agent of continuing liberation for, for people wherever I go. So there you go. That's where voices came from. But you can learn voices and you don't need to know any of the thing in the back end. It just works anyway. But for some people, they always want to know. But I want to know what lies behind it all. And I want the darker magic. And that's what you guys have been doing with me for the last nine months, isn't it? <laughs> So it's amazing. And, and I do encourage you, it'll be in the show notes, the five voices link to take the free assessment. If you hadn't, it's been powerful. We use it with every one of our clients. We use it with everybody we hire. We use it over and over. It's just, it's one of our tools in the toolbox. It's like a flathead screwdriver or a hammer. You cannot do without it. But there is some sophisticated tools that are very unique and special. And Steve has taken what he did with Ash there in that kitchen table and what he's done with so many, many leaders around the world to unlock them and turned it into something that's codified and that can allow accelerated influence. And Ash and I, for the last nine months, have been going through a course together that he's created, which is now the Giant Intensive. And it has been transformative. And I want him to have a minute to talk for those leaders who really do understand accelerated influence is the key to their moving their purpose and plan forward. This is the best tool I've ever seen. So, Steve, tell us a minute how you came up with it. Um, I think that the, you probably have a, someone like Becky to thank the most. I always say that the more competent you are, the harder it is for you to understand and decode your unconscious competence. So I've been at this for 20 years and in a sense have honed and refined a process where you used to you know, call it the giant life intensive. People used to come and spend three days, four days with me in London. I would take them on a journey, which I didn't really know how we get there, but I knew the parts along the way. And at the end of it would just come this magical sort of vision of their future that they felt fitted. But you can't multiply unconscious competence. Everyone looks at it and they go, wow, that's incredible. But they've no idea how they would go about learning it. So in a sense, when yeah, the only way you can multiply unconscious competence is to make it conscious. And for me, I usually need apprentices and people who are learning with me because they have to be to ask the question, which is, I don't understand why you did that. Or why did you say this? Or why did you say that? It's exhausting, by the way. <laughs> but in the end, what happens is you said, see, if we're going to, it's all very well me being able to do something. But the real skill is to go, can you create a way that others can take what hopefully has been your work and actually trust it to others to use? So over the course of the last two, three years, we've codified 20 years worth of work into something which we call the giant life intensive and it literally now runs on rails and that's the reason i can certify a small number of people it's invite only you know you know i take about eight people twice a year just on the journey with me but they're like navy seals and what it does is we take leaders through a journey usually at key transition moments in their lives so it's often when they're asking the purpose question of going I've, I've made a lot of money. I've sold my business. What am I going to do next? Or I've been highly successful as a professional in this area, but do I really want to spend the next 10, 15 years doing the same thing? So those are the type of places where people ask the question is almost, what is my why? And we take them through this journey, which goes through, who are you really? You know, when we get to nature, which Ash described, then we ask the question is, what would you most love to do with the life you have left if we remove all the inhibitions and the prohibitions? And that's a really, really 
fascinating process of what are the values that are important to you? What really makes you tick? And the key is making sure we help them dream a preferred future that actually matches their nature. And that's a, so at the end of session two, we've got this vision of a future, which is they're like almost, they, they don't really want to dream that big because for fear of failure, but ultimately we help them go on that journey. And then we ask the question is, what's going to stop this happening? Because everyone has had dreams in their lives, but the vast majority of people don't actually see them become reality because it's too difficult. So we then do a deep dive into what are the kryptonites? What's going to, you know, Superman and kryptonite? What's inherent in your nature? Well, I know what an ENFP is going to struggle with. I know what an ISTJ is going to struggle with. And actually helping name that and the things you're going to have to deal with by nature. We do the nurture story. All of us have kryptonite in our past. All of us have limiting beliefs, often what we call inhibitions dressed up as prohibitions. So helping people see a lot of the reasons why they won't live into that preferred future is things that will hold them from the past and setting them free from that and naming them. And then we ask, what are the choices you're going to have to make that actually are to do with rhythms and patterns of life and things that just you're going to have to be disciplined and intentional in. Put it all together into a plan codify it now into what we call the giant life bible which is literally a tabletop book which has all the learning codified from the life intensive experience and say we're going to walk with you for the rest of your life and every quarter as a minimum you're going to have a, a check-in to look at how we're doing against those key goals and set a new you know one thing for the next three months and then every year we usually do a, a more formal review now some people go Steve, forget every quarter. I want, I want my guide, as it were. I want every month. I want every week. And what usually happens, John, is because once somebody has walked you through that process, either five three-hour sessions over five weeks or three days just all together, we do a mix of those now. COVID helped innovate that process. Yeah. They literally go, you know me better than anyone else, and I trust you more than anyone else I know. So you talk about accelerated influence. Remember, trust has to come first and then influence begins to grow so at that point invariably people say i don't want to do life without you walking with me and then they go can you help me with my team or my organization we go yep and then they go can you help with my marriage because that's usually the place that most people feel the most vulnerable and weak and then they go i'm really struggling with my teenage kids so in a sense the life intensive is not just a standalone life-changing moment but it usually unlocks a relationship and a partnership that goes on for a long time you know in the cohort that you're in with me there are three of them in there who were senior pastors of churches that came and did a life intensive with me eight years ago and they still have the notes i mean now um, and the recordings nowadays of course it'll all get codified in a real way so you know that's the that's the bit where i go it's a bit like my magnus opus if you talk about that needs to go what's the one thing that hopefully i've learned to become if not the best in the world that's certainly one of the best but what i'm good at is also intentional multiplication and so therefore the thought i have people now who are actually loving delivering life intensives for their own clients and that's just continued to grow so we wanted to build the a, a brand which basically we only sell one thing we sell the giant life intensive and basically people can do it anywhere in the world. They can do it online. 
And we try really hard um, and spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of prayer thinking about who's the right consultant to make this journey with that individual. Because if you think even back to Ash's story, I was the person who opened the door to the breakthrough. But actually, I knew that Ash would need an extended processing of her own life intensive with someone who would walk with her longer term. And that's why, you know, Amy became and Amy will be, Ash, I'm sure it's true, not just, you know, um, she'll be a trusted friend for the rest of your life because you can't really repeat the experience that you had with her. So, you know, that wasn't one minute, John, but that's that's kind of, I get excited about these things. So I go, I love the thought that basically life intensives are not just anymore, how many can I do in a year? It's actually increasingly, there is a, a real skilled pool of people that I've trained personally and trust that can actually lead people through what is a very, very vulnerable process. Therefore, for me, it's like, it's not for everybody, but it's who are the people I trust to use the influence this will give them to be a true agent of liberation and change in the lives of the people they serve. So are you still friends with Amy, Ash? Absolutely. She and I are actually close friends and spend more time talking about each other's personal growth and challenges yeah. more than it being one-sided to where I'm just speaking in, to her and her directing me. So it's, it's really become a beautiful relationship. And, um, yeah, well, and it's really two parts. We're kind of now going through, you're teaching us and we're going to be certified in delivering the life intensives, which is a pretty extensive, I mean, it's a commitment of nine months or so or more to do that. But there's still, you've got a team of folks now that have been trained, and we plan on using that with our clients and the leaders we walk with. But there's people you have that can actually do life intensives if someone's interested in it. And so, Steve, that is what's so powerful to me is that I'm seeing how you are gifted at multiplication, and your life has taught us things. And we see the way, when I look out into the world and I said, there's a number of people that I want certain things the way they work intentionally and diligently and the way you've blended your work life and family is a model for me and for ash and the way we want to do things and you've been um tremendously just influential in our lives and continue to be so as we move forward ash and i are moving into our preferred future it took two years to get to where we accomplished our first part of the list now we're dreaming ahead and we're more aligned today and more in, in love with the process unified than we've ever been before. And that's, that's, that's the power of this type of uh, work. Yeah. Well, it's very gracious of you. And I think, you know, beyond the life intensive, we, we often end up doing marriage intensives for the reason right. that you describe, which is to go, people usually are um, people of influence and who are experienced leaders. When they get passionate about something, a lot of the people end up wanting to do something because they kind of know you're not the kind of person who gets excited about everything. So when Ash tells you this is really good and you should do it, everyone's like, okay, that means a great deal. And it, it's, it's, it's in many ways, you can, we can do in, intensives for the individuals, but it's amazing how many people actually in the end say, we're a transition season in our lives as a family, particularly if people work together, can we do it together? So I've had a number of people who've come over and, and done what we call a marriage intensive. We do certain things on our, our individually, but actually the fun of bringing them together, because in the end, how do we make your preferred future, John, match Ash's preferred future? And how do we begin to create synergy so that you can actually own 
what does that look like? And that's the reason why, you know, what you guys are doing. I think you will end up multiplying your unconscious competence in a very similar way and methodology to the one that I've done with you guys. But, you know, I appreciate your very kind, generous um, encouragement. And I think the key is, even when, like, Ash, I love what you said about Amy, is go, I learned so much from you guys. And I think it's the ability of being able to, in many ways, unlock people and then, in many ways, allow that relationship to become the theme rather than you always end up with the, you know, master servant role, you end up with friends. And, you know, you know me, you know, Jesus is a big thing for me. Again. I love the John 15, 15, where all the way through the training, and in the end he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Mm. Because you can now do what I've trained you to do and I'm actually delighting in the success of what it is you're doing. So for me, you know, the 100X leader is, is for me, it's, it's, it's already well me being healthy and talented. I probably got to the stage where I, I, I kind of believe that. The question for me is legacy-wise, how many layers of multiplication will I be able to leave before I finish? So I'm going for, you know, 100X to the power five. You know, what happens <laughs> if the people, the people I equip and train, you then go and influence other people who influence other people. That's where I think you create lasting legacy long after you're gone. So hopefully the, you know, most people, most people, John, die with the real gold in their pockets. Hmm. That's not their money, by the way. They usually spend a fortune working out how to do estate planning, inheritance planning. Yeah. But the reality is most people die having never multiplied their unconscious competence. And that's for me, is one of the biggest frustrations at times that some of the leaders who get celebrated as the hugely successful actually the thing that was the most valuable they never disciplined the the unconscious competence so they could multiply into the lives of others anyway i digress ash and i agree we'd say we leave a legacy on the hearts of men and women and not just in sticks and bricks and we're getting to do a lot of marriage work now we've got a couple of couples that we're walking with and it's i think something ash and i can do is multiply the things we've learned of almost 30 years of marriage and some real tragedy and then some real amazing miracles into the lives of others. So I got three questions I ask most people at the end of these, just bam, 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 to to land the plane. And so number one is going to be, who do you know that we should know about? So who's doing great work in the world? You say, you need to look at these folks who are doing great work that some of our people may not know about. Gosh, you should have prepared me for this because I'm like no, going... Uh, just um, anybody. There's so many people, John. I mean, like I, go, I kind of feel I should give a shout out to Ali Trowbridge because she was the reason we got together. Ali's a rock star and copper. I love that. She is such an amazing entrepreneur and I love her. So whatever she's doing, I'm in for. Yeah, she's doing a book club, I think, called Copper. We'll share that in the thing. Perfect. Yeah. That's a friend and somebody knows. What have you read that we should read? Cool. Good question. Um, what am I reading at the moment? I, so there's a book here called Making Room for Leadership, which um, room for leadership. it looks at how power dynamics work in a room and how hmm. us men often use power to disempower women because of their physical place. So I, we've got some I've got some amazing women I work with in the leadership of the local church and we're reading this together. And it's it's the one that's on my table right now, which I'm like going, oh, my goodness, I understand how much power I have in any environment. 
and actually I hope I'm being more disciplined how I use it. So it's a really interesting way of looking at how power dynamics work in relationships and in physical space. So, you know. That's awesome. Who's and the then the last. The author of that. She's called Mary Kate Morse. It's, okay. it's uh, I don't know if you can see that one. Can you see that? Oh, maybe not. Mary Kate Morse, Making Room for Leadership. Power, Space so and Influence. In, in this, you are an experienced guy. When we came to London, you gave us this amazing, we ate Pollen Street Social and went <laughs> to see an amazing play. And you are an experienced junkie. It's your, it's your jam. <laughs> so the last question is, what has Steve Cockrum done that you should tell us we all need to do? What experience have you had that you said, don't miss this one. This is something you need to do. I think you've done it, John. I, okay, I, well then tell us what it is. So, so, so I would say that basically I talk about, um, I say if you took mountains and mealtimes out of the Bible, you'd have 50 pages left. So <laughs> everything everyone remembers happened either on a mountaintop experience or around a meal table. So what I would say is to go, and I learned a lot from Jeremy, is to go, if you combine those two things, you create a life-changing memorable moment for somebody around an amazing meal they remember that for the rest of their lives so that's the bit for me i go that that kind of having having somebody who is a genius at what they do so i love doing the wine tasting with you guys in opelika because you've got somebody who is like they absolutely love what they do whether it's food whether it's wine whatever it is mm -hmm. and actually create an experience and a memory that has food and drink involved in it I still remember going on and drinking the whiskey flights later on in the evening. <laughs> so don't quite know how I got home completely, but it's that creating memories with people around food and wine. And those are the things that people always remember. And I think they're the things that when you write the highlights of your life, you usually remember the mountaintops and the mealtimes. And if you can make them together, then actually that's a really precious thing. Steve, I love you. You're a good man and you've been a great <laughs> friend. Ash, anything to land us today? I, I so appreciate you sharing everything, Steve. It's going to be in the notes. And guys, we could do this for hours and hours. He's a, please check out Giant. Check out all they're doing in the world. It's good anointed work. And Steve is a, a leader that cares about people. And I've watched him make a difference in others' lives, but especially ours. Anything, Ash, to close? No, I love you. I honor you. I thank you so much for giving so much of your life to all of us. So be blessed. Thank you, everyone. If this has added value, please share it and check out the show notes of all the amazing things that we're going to have there. Have a great day.